Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Carrie Brownstein. And I'm Corinne Tucker. We're from Slater Kinney, and this is the LSQ Podcast. As we find ourselves here together in early 2024, not only are we on the cusp of a new album by the legendary indie band Slater Kinney, their 11th studio album Little Rope is out January 26th, but also this year is Slater Kinney's 30th anniversary, and so that provides the perfect opportunity for me to talk with Corin Tucker and Carrie Brownstein of the band about their early days and about their encounters with music before they'd even met and about Riot Girl, and much more. Thanks so much for pressing play on episode 99 of the LSQ podcast. I'm Jenny LSQ. Let's get into it. Welcome. Um, it's, it's a pleasure and an honor to get to meet you. And um, I want to start off by asking each of you to talk a little bit about what you remember of your earliest creative feelings in life as a kid. When did you first feel a spark of, of creativity? I think that I was lucky in that I grew up in a very musical family. My dad was a hobby musician when I was a kid, and he was always playing guitar and getting me to sing from the time I was really little. And so that just seemed like what people did to me. Like That just seemed like a normal Saturday morning was like singing to like folk songs and you know the Pete Seeger stuff and Woody Guthrie and so I think that I had this kind of bedrock foundation that it was a normal thing to just sing protest songs and and folk songs. (laughs) Did you enjoy it? Did you genuinely enjoy it when that was happening? I did yeah and I think that I was a pretty happy-go-lucky kid at that I mean I'm talking like I was like three and we have like these really ridiculous tapes of me like singing along to my dad playing guitar and you know I think that I had a really positive association with that and later when I got into school and met up with like choir teachers and music teachers that had like all of these expectations of what was okay for singing what wasn't I rarely would fit into what they wanted but my earliest memories were very positive. So I think eventually those came into play for me. Yeah, because you're saying that they, it's then there was technique. They had certain technique that they expected you to follow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So did that, did you get alienated from it for a little while? And kind of how did you, how did you get back into it again? I honestly didn't, I, I like stopped doing music when I was a teenager because I was really, just fed up with other people's ideas of like this is how you're supposed to do it this is the wrong way this is the right way and I really didn't sort of reevaluate that until I was in college and I saw Bikini Kill and Brownmobile play a live show I saw these women doing it 
exactly their own way, not following anybody else's ideas of what roles were and just completely like shocking people. I thought that was so exciting. And I was like, that's what I want to do with music. And and did you then just, was it like the first time you had just let your voice out to sing? Did you just start kind of, you know, in the, in your room or whatever, just like, I'm going to sing again. I'm let's, let's let the voice out. Well, what I did was I, and this is so funny, but I was like, I'm, I'm in a band. I'm in a band too. You know, everyone in Olympia was like in a band and I was like, well, I'm in a band too. You know, I mean, I was probably 18 years old at that point and just such a brat, but, um, but I, I told people that I had a band and then Michelle Noel, who was booking this festival, this international pop underground festival was like, oh, we're having a girl night. So I want you to play. And so she like completely called my bluff. And I was like, and that's when I started writing songs. But she was like, we booked you a slot. So I had to actually start writing music for that performance. Holy shit. That's amazing. Carrie, tell me a bit of your sort of that, that similar trajectory. Like when did you first start feeling like a creative soul? I think my childhood was very much full of weird performances that I would put on with my sister or roping in neighbor friends to like do plays. I would write plays or decide that we were going to hold like a lip sync competition in the neighborhood. I had a band called Little D Duran Duran when I was in elementary school, which was just a Duran Duran covers band. And we built <laughs> uh, instruments out of out of wood, out of scrap wood in our parents' garages and painted them to look like guitar strings or, you know, the the black and white keys on the on the keyboard for Nick Rhodes. <laughs> and we each picked a role and we just rehearsed all summer. Like I just was so interested in that being the way that I hung out with people was just that we will do something creative and fun. And that's to me, the most invigorating and inspiring way to be with a group of people. So I was always kind of scheming and figuring out ways of, of bringing people together through like music or comedy or theater. And that continued, you know, up until high school in terms of more like more theatrical things. Like I loved being in my drama class in school, but then in high school, I discovered punk and indie music. And then that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. It was just so immediate. I wanted to get a guitar. It was like the first thing I was doing that was my own. Like it wasn't sort of filtered through another idea. It wasn't me emulating Madonna's Vogue video for an MTV contest. You know, like there was all these ways that you could sort of dip into creativity, but they were never of your own, like making really. So punk and having my own guitar sort of allowed me my own kind of story. So I started inserting myself and my ideas into the the product itself, not just into the making of it, but into what I was writing. And yeah, that was, that was pretty incessant <laughs> just from a young age, you know, all, all the way through high school. Was the, you know, when did playing guitar become something you fixated on or, or, you know, really dedicated yourself to like at that early age, 
did it become, was it more about the expression as you're saying of like, I'm going to express myself and my ideas as a writer or was that on a tandem with sort of like, like shredding or learning to shred? It was more about songwriting. I think I went to school with Jeremy Enoch who went on to be in sunny day real estate. He was my neighbor and we were in the same grade and he would show me guitar chords mostly by playing uh, Sinead O'Connor songs or U2. And, you know, he has this beautiful voice and I would just sort of learn like the basic open chords. And he just, he was very supportive in the sense that he said, now that you know these couple chords, you really can write so many songs. And so I would go back to my house and just play two or three chords, maybe four, <laughs> add a fourth chord in the bridge and and just start writing. But the act of playing was just as important. You know, I wasn't really shredding, but I loved the feeling of turning up the amplifier in my room, that sense of volume, you know, there was, there was some energy and, you know, frustration I could channel into it, which was very different than anything I had done before. Like that never had a thread of anger to it or dissatisfaction, but the guitar, it's such an emotional instrument. It's such an expressive instrument that I was able to kind of grapple with the, the murkier emotions of, of adolescence. And uh, I loved that about it. So I, I spent many hours in my room just playing guitar. And growing up, like in, in the same, in the same era for both of you, what was the music you mentioned? Obviously, Duran Duran, Carrie, was a must've hit you pretty hard to have the little D Duran Duran cover band. But wait, what was the music that as you were starting to find your own musical taste, you know, even before this Bikini Kill Bratmobile show, Corn, that was like the first music you you really identified with when you saw yourself as a, as, you know, that you made music as well, that you're like, this is, this is the kind of artist that maybe I would be. I think Sinead O'Connor was huge for me. She was so incredibly outspoken. There was no BS about her at all, right? So the music industry in the 80s was just like, was so incredibly like commercial and big hair bands and women were like these sex objects in music videos. And it just really didn't appeal to me. And so to have this woman that was just all about, you know, singing from her heart and sort of speaking out about different politics and relationships. I just, I was like so inspired by her. I shaved my head, which didn't really work for me, but I just really, really looked up to her and the way that she was just a hundred percent herself all the time without worrying about pleasing anyone else. Yeah. Carrie, for you, who was the sort of coming of age artists that really spoke to you? Yeah. I mean, Sinead O'Connor, for sure. I, you know, we had a, a group sleepover the night before her tickets went on sale in Seattle and people shaved. It was in the suburbs. So people were like, well, we're not going to shave our full head, but we'll just give ourselves like a little undercut in the back. That's, <laughs> that's our small suburban defiance that we're capable of. But at, at that point, you know, my friends had started bringing records, you know, we'd share records and I would go into places like Cellophane Square in Seattle, or there's one in Bellevue, which is adjacent to the suburb I was living in, or Roboto Records. You would just find these stores and then, you know, you can call them gatekeepers. That sounds sort of negative at the time. They really, sure, they were gatekeepers, but they were also, 
your guides. You know, there wasn't a blog you could look at or an algorithm that helped you sort. Like if you were lucky and a lot of these stores did have, you know, employees and some of them were musicians that cared a lot about not only the music in the cities you were living in, but music from London or music from Sydney, Australia or music from Minneapolis. And all of a sudden, like the world was filled in in a way that you actually cared about, you know, like you, you learn about geography as a kid, but you sort of learn about it and, and for the sake of geography or the sake of politics or the sake of history. But then you start realizing like from each of these places, like has sprung forth these scenes. And what was interesting to me, of course, was the music coming out of there. And I would just start realizing, oh my gosh, you know, there's the replacements and soul asylum there in Minneapolis there's throwing muses coming out of Boston, you know, then you, you head over to DC and you start getting, you're like, okay, there's this band Fugazi and there's lungfish and you just realize it's proliferating. It's happening everywhere. And that was very exciting to me. But when it all kind of hits you is when you realize where I live has this too. And so I would go from the Seattle suburbs into Seattle to a place like the okay hotel and see Tree People, which was Doug Marsh's band before Built to Spill. I'd see him play. I would see Beat Happening, who had come up from Olympia. You know, the Fastbacks, who are a Seattle band. You know, then it all makes sense. It's like you suddenly, it's like it, it starts, it's like this asteroid that's coming closer. And then you're just like, oh my God, it's here. Like, they're right here. They're right in my backyard. Like, I don't, I don't have to be separate from this. Like fandom is one thing, but participation is another. And when you actually see it in front of you, you see it on the stage, you see how people play. It's not just a video on MTV. You understand, oh, this is how it works. This is how bass and guitar work together. This is how like people stand on stage. Like it's just, it's this huge demystification process and it's revelatory. It's so transformational. So yeah, that was, that was kind of what ushered in the real desire to make music was seeing it live. Yeah. And it must've been just wild to be, I mean, in a particular moment in time, like the age that we are, like, you know, you're in the epicenter of a local scene going true mainstream, which, you know, didn't happen for DC or Minneapolis, St. Paul or Athens. I mean, REM, yeah, they got there to hugeness, but obviously with Nirvana, it all happened so fast on a world stage. And then y'all are a couple of years apart arriving to Evergreen and Olympia and that's happening. That's all already happening. Nirvana is fucking huge. And then here's this scene that is different in such important ways from that. Like it, it can be its own thing within the thing. Um, tell me a bit about what, when you kind of started, how early on in your life at Evergreen and in Olympia, did you start realizing, wait a minute, all of these other people are creative too. And there's a lot of really exciting stuff happening right, right here, you know? For me, I mean, it was my freshman year when I met all of those amazing people in Olympia. I met, like I said, Michelle Noel. I met Calvin Johnson. I met Julie Butterfield. And I started my band, Heavens to Betsy, kind of right away. And I was so, you know, I had no idea how lucky I was to be a part of a scene that was so supportive and especially supportive of young women. I mean, that summer after we did our one show, Calvin Johnson was like, well, we should definitely put out a single. 
for you guys on K Records, you know, which was like my dream as a as a teenager. It's like everyone looked up to K Records to see what what they were doing and you know, the way that they put out truly independent music was so exciting. And so, you know, I think I was just really, really fortunate to be a part of that kind of right away when I hardly knew what I was doing in terms of playing or, or writing songs. So I was going to college in at Western Washington in Bellingham, which is far up north, and I already was feeling a, a little displaced and that I had made the wrong choice. And then Corin's band, Heavens to Betsy, came to Bellingham, which I was very excited about. They were playing with Mecha Normal and Bikini Kill. I just couldn't believe my luck. And so I went to the show, Bikini Kill canceled. So it was just Mecha Normal and Heavens to Betsy. And I watched the show and I went up to Corin afterwards and just said, uh, you know, I'd love more information on Riot Girl. I think I'm going to move to Olympia and and drop out of the school and she said yeah you should <laughs> just like so i gave her not my address in bellingham but my my address my my dad's address i just thought well i'm probably moving home for a while and so i did i moved home i applied for evergreen got in and and moved to olympia that following summer so the summer of 93 yeah it was an incredible like learning experience like as important as my experience at the university, you know, just being immersed in so much music. Everyone had a band. I think I went, I went there the summer before college started and I probably saw a show three or four nights a week at a different house. <laughs> like everyone just played houses. And it was this time where these, because of what was happening, you know, because you had Bikini Kill, you had Unwound, Carp, God had Silo, you you know, God had Silo were a band that had moved from North Dakota, all and then Huggy Bear were in from England that summer. It just felt like this nucleus. And so these bigger bands, like a band like Rancid or Jawbreaker, would stop and play a punk house in Olympia. They'd be on a tour where they'd be playing some legitimate venue in Seattle and a legitimate venue in San Francisco, but they would come and play a punk house in Olympia just to hang out, just to like drink beer and play a show and be around, you know, Toby Vale from Bikini Kill and Justin Trosper from Unwound. Like it just felt so fertile and it was very exciting how deconstructionist the idea of bands were that there was, there was a lot of unconventional lineups. It, it really kind of frowned upon professionalism in this one way, but at the same time there were people that were very innovative, like Justin's guitar playing and Unwound was extremely innovative. Mike Kunkka, who was the bass player in Godhead Silo, you know, what Carp were doing, you know, just early like metal band that completely predated a whole resurgence of kind of alternative metal. Like there's, I mean, it was absolutely fascinating. And uh, Mary Lou Lord and Elliot Smith just playing a basement show. It was I didn't even realize at the time how rare this was, you know, that I was living in a tiny town of less than 40,000 people and could see Rancid or Elliot Smith or Jawbreaker or Beck or Stereolab play in these tiny, tiny venues because they had wanted to come to Olympia. You know, no, no one was forcing them. I'm sure their booking agents were like, you absolutely do not need to stop there, <laughs> but they wanted to stop there and they wanted to hang out. And that's what artistic 
scenes need, you know, it, it things need to be percolating ideas need to be shared, like an ex exchange, you know, these things don't happen in a vacuum. So you, you feel the influence of an outside band come in like stereo lab. And then you end up with a band like, like mock it or something, you know, like you could just, it all works together. There's so much synergy. And so, yeah, these bands would come in and then leave. And then you could just feel the remnants of them in the, in the next wave of bands. It was very, very special. Um, I think it's really interesting when you talked about how your first meeting with each other, you asked Corin to send you some more information on Riot Girl. And I, I am curious if you remember, like, Corin, did you send anything in the mail? But also on the, you know, this is pre-internet. And as you're saying, discovering music was a whole different process and sharing ideas as a teenager was a whole different process and finding bigger ideas and important ideas was a different process. And y'all came up in this scene where one of its particular qualities was zine culture and really a thriving zine culture to disseminate bigger ideas to receptive minds. And so I'm imagining that this was, the Riot Girl stuff was probably some of the first times you were ever really thinking about these issues of gender and representation and all of that kind of stuff. If you could talk a little bit about those Riot Girl zines and kind of how they changed your mind during during that early era. Yeah, I mean, I think that the zine culture was really impactful and really interesting. When I got to Olympia and, you know, I read the Bikini Kill fanzine, which had both Kathleen's writing in it and Toby's writing in it. And they're very different thinkers, very different writers, but both really fascinating. To me, what I liked about their writing was that it took these sort of ideas of, of feminism, you know, that were kind of like academic to a large part in, in the 1970s and 1980s, and they put them into a vocabulary that was really aimed at teenage girls. It was really uh, talking about, you know, standing up for yourself and your own physical safety, you know, whether it was, was walking at home at night from your job, or if it was going to a rock show and feeling like you physically were going to be safe while you were there, or it was, you know, during a physical relationship you had with someone else. Like it took these sort of abstract ideas and put them into a very personal language and a language that was aimed at young women. And I thought that was brilliant. I didn't always agree with what everyone said, you know, I had my own take on things, but I thought that idea of rewriting the feminist vernacular into something that was like in a punk song or in a, a fanzine or a personal story, I thought that was so valuable and so interesting. And so I definitely made my own fanzine and, and, you know, having to Betsy, it was definitely like a riot girl band. Like I really wanted to be a part of it. And to your question about me and Carrie, I didn't write her. I was always a terrible pen pal, but I knew I'd see her again. I knew that I'd see her again. And part of the scene in Olympia was all of us, not just writing fanzines, but arguing about all of this stuff in person and, and discussing it. And that was part of the beauty of it was that you know, we were talking about things personally that we all, you know, not everyone thought the same way, but there was enough of a shared idea of wanting to change things that we felt like we were part of a community where we could exchange ideas and we could challenge each other 
and we could influence each other to to be bigger writers and better writers and and better creators by just kind of having those relationships with each other. And was I mean, could you feel sort of the ch- a, a change happening in real time? I mean, as you were, you know, during these first couple of years, you know, by the time Carrie's at Evergreen as well, did you did it feel like, oh no, this is we are making we are making this little world for ourselves that we want to inhabit, like that it was just a home that you had built a home for yourselves in this scene. Well, the crazy thing was that the rest of the world got interested right away. And instead of just writing fan scenes for each other and playing these little house shows, huge publications got interested in Riot Girl. In 19, I think it was 92, we went, my band, Heaven Betsy and Brett Mobile, toured across the country. And, you know, we were doing these like small punk shows that were billed as like Riot Girl shows that just kept getting bigger and bigger and more exciting and, and more charged. And by the time we got to Washington, D.C., and there was like this Riot Girl convention and everything just kind of exploded from there. I mean, there was the New York Times, Washington Post, Newsweek, like everyone wanted to write about Riot Girl, but it was very much like a top-down kind of view of these young women in a way that felt like they were, you know, often characterizing the story in a way about how we looked, how we talked, how we dressed, instead of what we were really trying to do. And the different perspectives existed within it. You know, it happened so fast, right? This is a period of like 18 months that I was like, I'm a riot girl. And then suddenly it was like, you know, it just felt, it felt totally overwhelming. So it happened really fast. And then by, honestly, by 1993, 94, people were like, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. It's, it's really uncomfortable. I don't like reporters following me home and writing about my personal life. That's not what I signed up for. It's wild to think about how quickly that happened. I guess I hadn't hadn't zoomed out on it that way. So then by the time it's like 94 and the two of you are embarking on making music together, there's a tangible sense of this is the next thing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, you know, we tried to do this like really important revolution, you know, and, and it was super problematic. Right. So what do we take away from that experience? Well, I still want to be a writer. I still want to create music. But, you know, how do we do it in a way that's more of like a long term project of something that's going to be less of like a a trend or a label for a band and more of something that could be a band that was about anything. And I think that was that was kind of the basis of, of when we started writing together. Yeah, was that something that you talked about explicitly at all in this in this era when the first group of tunes was being was being written? Just sort of like how to adapt from what you had learned from Excuse Seventeen and Heavens to Betsy and the Riot Girl thing, or was it? Let's talk a bit a bit about that first group of songs. Like, what you know, did you know what you were doing when you started writing those songs together? That this is our new band. We've got a new band. Let's write some songs for it. It's interesting because no, we weren't talking about it explicitly, but if you look at what we did, which was to take ourselves to the other side of the world, to Australia, which is really where Slater Kinney formed in earnest. Corin had graduated from college and wanted to travel. I used it as an opportunity to do independent study. So I was able to sort of get away from my classes at Evergreen. And so we literally take ourselves... <laughs> to the other side of the world to start this band. So even though we 
had not explicitly had a conversation that said, let's sort of re-examine context and what this band might mean and where this band is coming from. We did just that. We went somewhere else and we created something that for sure would not be able to be, you know, considered in the same way that Heavens to Betsy had or Excuse 17 or even the other bands like Bikini Kill. Like this was going to be different. You know, we would pay homage and have respect for where we came from and the community from which we came forth, but we were not that. This was going to be something different. Yeah, it wasn't a deliberate conversation, but every action we took suggested that we wanted to be considered and assessed as something brand new, as something that was both from Olympia and absolutely would be bigger and transcend Olympia. And that was always in the DNA of this band, uh, whether it was conscious or not at the beginning. And what was that very first songwriting process like? And how much does the way writing an album like Little Rope mirror the the method that you started with? I think that some of the, the writing that we did for that first album is still part of the methodology that we use today. Like I can remember we were like staying in, in Lerma Perlin's flat in Melbourne. And I can remember Carrie playing the riff for Mia Mama, like in the other room and me yelling, like, keep playing like stop, stop. and I was like running to like write vocals to that guitar part and I still think that's part of of how we write songs is we get together and you know we we try and inspire each other with like what about this part what about this idea I came up with this riff or this song idea that's still very much part of of how we write songs together I mean obviously we have different tools now with like computers and files and you know being demoing a whole song in logic but it still doesn't doesn't feel like a Slater Kinney song until we have that confluence of energy between the two of us where we both kind of dig in and, and make the song a Slater Kinney song. What would you say through through the catalog were albums that marked for y'all an important discovery or pivot or expansion of what was what you realized was possible for the sound of the band? There's a lot of those moments. I mean, we try to make every album have at least one of those moments, but I think obviously Dig Me Out was like a huge step forward for the band. It just, it had a really propulsive sound to it um, with Janet White's drumming. It just really made us a bigger, you know, grittier rock band. And people noticed us, you know, with that album, we suddenly had like real audiences at our shows. And, and so that definitely changed the band. I, I would even say there's a moment before that that's so signature on Call the Doctor where the counter melodies in the, the chorus of Joey Ramone and in the song the uh, Call the Doctor where we're just singing over each other in the chorus, like that to me is such a crucial, like essential Slater-Kinney sound that then of course would reoccur. Um, so to me, there's that and call the doctor and then exactly what you're saying on, on dig me out, like kind of like there's that idea, the, the ideas on call the doctor, like coming to some kind of like, you know, apex on dig me out, like really just having a clarity and purpose. But then I think like, well, hot rock, which was such a left turn, such a strange 
beast after Dig Me Out, so unexpected. But that to me sets the stage for defying people's expectations over and over again later on, you know? So, and then you could take a break. I think after, after Call the Doctor, Dig Me Out, Hot Rock, you could say, you could take a small break. Although I would also argue that on something like All Hands or All Hands on the Bad One, which is the full title, there are some real pop moments on that album, like melodically that people sort of forget about. And then when they're calling our later stuff like oh wow what are they what are they doing with these like melodies i'm like oh did you not hear all hands on the bad one <laughs> there's so much pop stuff on that album you know and then of course the woods sort of broke everything open again you know there a, a full reconsideration of the band guitar solos you know all of this like open space that we were exploring it wasn't just like terse and succinct it was suddenly like you know vast and wild and yeah. So I just, they're just, I, I guess I feel proud of the ways that each album ushers in something. It's not always as big of a moment as, you know, Call the Doctor, Dig Me Out, Hot Rock the Woods, but you can see these inklings in our earlier records, even the ones that people might not consider as classic. I can hear those ideas in our current songs for sure. And I think Little Rope is another, you know, this, this album to me, conjure something so primal about the band, which I'm really excited about. Well, if you don't mind, say more about that. What what is the what is the thing it conjures that's primal about the band for you? I think it has a restlessness to it. I think it has an urgency. I think it has a a fragility, but also just this real like screech and scrawl. And I think guitar feels like the shared language on this album. I think it has a lot of corn singing, which we haven't necessarily heard in a while. So yeah, those are, those are the things about it. Like it just, it feels like it's both reaching back, but also like squarely, like, and with certainty, like looking forward and also kind of assessing the present. And I think the best Slater Kinney records often are in conversation with Corin and myself. And this feels like one of those albums. Like what was great about Dig Me Out was we were sort of singing to each other through the songs. In this album, we're, we're kind of doing that as well. Not necessarily like the subject matter is about the other person, which was a little more like Dig Me Out, but that we're trying to sort of communicate something to to bolster the other person, to express a vulnerability or in the songs, yeah. If you could each tell me about a song from Little Rope that to you just feels really like uh, kind of all of the energies to make the album kind of coalesce, it feels uh, truly representative for you. I think Hunt You Down for me, it's the fourth song. It's emblematic of the album in that it it has an energy, it has a darkness, it has the stakes feel very high in terms of like the the lyrical content of the song, but it has an element that I think Corn and I always love in other people's songs and in our own, which is that bittersweet quality where what you're singing is sad, but the music, the melody is uplifting and that just that weird, happy, sad combination that sort of you get in your in your chest. I love that about the chorus. I love when Corn sings on the chorus. I just think, yeah, it, it, it has the scope to me of what this album is. Like it's, it feels ambitious, but it also feels personal it feels like it's reaching for something, but it also feels like it's trying to hold on to something really, really tight. And that to me is is a lot of what this album is. For me, the song Howl on Little Rope was just a really, it's a, just a really strong way to sort of drop 
the listener into the world that we're trying to build. And we were lucky enough to work with John Congleton on this album. And he's so good at doing sort of like that soundscape thing, you know, so you hear this kind of like eerie quality to the beginning of the song. And, you know, that's kind of mirroring where we are in America in a lot of ways. And that's kind of what we wanted to do with the album is show this world that was dark and frightening, but also had all these like piercing moments of of light in it and of recognition. And so when that finally gets to the chorus in the song and I'm just wailing away and and it's just like a rock song, you know, it, it, it still has that moment of like just raising, you know, like we're all in this together. Don't you realize that? You know, like I think that it kind of has that quality of like, yes, we're in this very strange place, but we're here together and we need to recognize the power of our voices. Well, that's a perfect place for us to wrap up, y'all. Uh, thank you so much, Corin and Carrie, for talking with me. It's been awesome. Thank you, Jenny. It was lovely to, to see you. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. You can pre-order a copy of Sleater Kinney's Little Rope at sleater-kinney.com. And while you're there, get tickets for one of their upcoming shows. And thanks again to Carrie and Corin for joining me. And thank you as well. I'm really excited for episode 100, y'all. It's out in a couple more weeks and features an artist I adore, Sam Herring from Future Islands. And I hope you'll come back and also check out some other episodes of the LSQ podcast, which you can find at JennyLSQ.com. And you can find me online at JennyLSQ. 